the U.S. Navy SEALs are arguably the most elite special forces unit in all of the world. In a word, the training to become a U.S. Navy SEAL is brutal. Uh, the training is so daunting that 50% wash out in the first seven weeks. Uh, this training is designed to push these soldiers to their limits. To their limits mentally, to their limits physically. And then even after those seven weeks, another, I believe, 25% wash out from there. It's not for anyone. And for those who become a Navy SEAL, they are trained and they are equipped and they are prepared for whatever they're going to face in deployment. So for us, it's very human. We're going through this book of 1 Peter and we're talking about suffering, we're talking about trials, and from a human perspective, it is very human of us to be uncomfortable with the reality of trials the reality of suffering, the reality of hardships and afflictions that we just prayed about, we know those things are certain, but they are hard. Like, why do we have to have these things? Why do we need to go through these things? We're going to be looking at that today. But what I want to submit to you this morning, and this is very critical for all of us to get, what happens before trials and afflictions and challenges, what happens before those things show up is as critical as when they show up and what shows up. What happens in your life and in my life is so very critical to when those things show up. See, a Navy SEAL knows that deployment is coming. It's eventual. They're not going through all of this training to say, hey, I became a Navy SEAL, check me out. They understand that the day is coming where they're going to have to hop on a plane and go somewhere to complete a mission. They know it's coming. But here's what a Navy SEAL also knows. They know something that gives them a massive boost of confidence, and it even gives them an, an advantage in battle. And here's what that is. What they know is this. They know that their chance of dying was far greater in training than what they are about to face. That gives them a massive confidence boost. They know that whatever they are about to step into, it's not as challenging as what they've already been through. It's not at that level. Where we're going today is, is your relationship with God and your faith in the truth of His Word determines how you are going to respond and how you're going to hold up when trials surface in your life. As a matter of fact, it really won't have anything to do with the particular trial that surfaces in your life. At a certain point, that actually becomes somewhat irrelevant. What's relevant, what really matters is 
what was the state of your relationship with God and what was your relationship like with him through his word before that ever landed at the doorstep of your life? That's the key. And here in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is imparting some truths to us that we, listen, cannot afford to simply know, but we must believe them. Having knowledge and faith in these things will be paramount to us holding up when the furnace of life is turned up against us. When the heat is on, as the old song in the 80s went. When the heat is on, your ability to hold up or pass out or give in or give up and quit determines how we respond to these things. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, what follows this in verse 6 is short of incredible. But I will say this, before we can even entertain getting what follows this in in verse 6, it's really, it hinges on if we get what we just read in these verses. We can't just gloss over these verses that we have just read because for many of us, who have read and studied the Bible so long. Okay, yeah, I know everything that we just read. That is very common knowledge. But Peter outlined four precious truths. Listen, and this, this, is, this is the key. Listen, these truths are so incredible and so powerful that they can cause you to rejoice greatly in extremely difficult seasons in your life. So the fact that we are familiar with these things doesn't really mean a whole lot if when we find ourselves in hard times, hard trials, seasons of affliction and suffering, but yet we can't rejoice. It tells us that there's some work for us to do with these truths. Number one, we have a new birth. He says in verse three, hath begotten us again. That is in the past tense of the phrase born again. So, in verse 23, he refers to being born again by the word of God. This is a supernatural birth, which is an incredible blessing. I believe one of the things that many of us are so guilty of is is we have allowed ourselves to take a very mundane position on our salvation. It is, it is so given. Oh, yeah, well, sure. And listen, I, I'm thankful that the Lord reminds me from time to time that, that God never owed us anything. I think sometimes we, 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 we subtly think that, well, God had to come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and die for our sins and be buried and raised again on the third day. Well, God had to, No, God didn't have to do that. 
Because he is love, and because he so loved the world, that's why he did it. And it pleased him, and it brings him glory to have done it. But he didn't do it because he owed us something. And so if you get to the place in your life where your new birth is just, well, that's just par for the course. What else you got for me, God? You're already in, in a, you already have a problem. And please understand this. If you're not rejoicing now in your new birth, you most certainly won't do it when trials surface in your life. Two, we have a living hope. Verse three, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. This is the one and only mention of this phrase in scripture, lively hope. But this is focused on heaven, not earth, this lively hope. As Christians, listen, this is very, very important because I think subconsciously some of us are here. But as Christians, if we're really grounded in the word of God, we have to abandon this idea that at some point, someday, there's going to be a time, a season where this world takes a turn for the better. Where things are going to get better. They're going to improve. Like, no. And there are people who are working as hard as they can to try and make that a reality. And what that represents is that's their hope. As a Christian, that can't be your hope. If you know the word of God, you understand it can't get better because you know what's coming. This is why the apostle Paul taught us to what? To seek and to set our affection where? On things above, not on things of the earth. And a lively hope, listen, it's not wishful thinking or positive thinking in the secular sense. A lively hope, a living hope, is a genuine uh, expectation of receiving something from God. It's genuine. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, the Apostle Paul taught us that this corruptible must put on incorruption. In Philippians 3, 21, he taught us that the Lord Jesus Christ shall change our vile bodies, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. In verse 24 of 1 Peter chapter 1 here, flesh is likened to grass that withers and falls away. So this inheritance, listen, it has to do with our full redemption. It has to do with us inheriting, receiving our glorified bodies. Praise the Lord. First John 3 tells us that when we see him, we shall see him as he is and we shall what? Be like him. Praise the Lord. So, this is, we're told, reserved for us where? Not on earth. In heaven. This is where our lively hope is set to. So we have a guaranteed inheritance. How about that? It is guaranteed. And listen, praise God. Praise God. Listen, 
this glorified body, it can't get cancer. It can't get COVID-19. It can't get congestive heart failure. And in Peter's day, this glorified body, it can't be mutilated and tortured by wicked people. It's untouchable in those regards. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter told us in verse 3 that we were begotten again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that points to our belief on the gospel, our salvation in Christ. And because of that, we are kept, the Bible says, by the power of God. So we have a guarded salvation. We have a guarded salvation. Are you rejoicing yet? <laughs> you ought to be. You ought to be rejoicing. <laughs> now, by salvation, I am referring to our complete salvation, or as we understand it, our glorification. Not just talking about the profession of faith that you made when you believed on the gospel and you were saved. I'm, I am referring to that, but I'm talking also about, again, just the completeness of that, which is where, what Peter has in view. Our salvation is complete, and it will be complete when we receive our inheritance that he is talking about. But how is that salvation kept? By the power of God. Praise God that it's not kept by the power or the best of Kenny Morgan or Rich or Mark or Jason or any of us. It's kept by the power of God. And this is ready to be revealed at the last time. That is a reference to the last days that we are most certainly living in as we sit here this morning, and it is ready to be revealed. So, in light of those truths, now we're ready for verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. Wait a minute, I'm sorry. That must be a, a mistranslation. That, that can't be accurate. Didn't we say last week that during this time, Christians were being persecuted unimaginably? Fed the lions, burned alive, and what did we just read? Wherein ye greatly rejoice? Really? So that's my question to you. It's my question to me this morning. Are you greatly rejoicing in life? Not talking about life fellowship, but in life. But you're also in life fellowship, so are you rejoicing here too? <laughs> Thank you for laughing, by the way. I, I, I'm not the funny pastor. I, I try and be like Sam and crack a joke here and there, and I just get straight faces. Like, like hey, it's okay to laugh. It really is. Like, I'm not that intense. I can't be. Well, my wife might disagree, but so... I digress. <laughs> are you, though, are you greatly rejoicing in life? Based on what we read here in verse 6, it sounds like despite what these believers were up against, they were. They were. 
Again, 1 Peter is very Pauline, and the Apostle Paul himself had much to say about rejoicing, correct? We see for sure here in Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. When? No, just when things are going really good. When life is downhill. When circumstances and scenarios are favorable. That's when we rejoice, right? That's not what the Apostle Paul taught. Always. And again, I say rejoice. But listen, this is the truth. If your affection is set on the things of this earth, the things of this world, you are not only not rejoicing greatly, but you're also so very frustrated. Because that is the end of that direction. When your faith, when your focus is set on the thing, your affection is set on the things of this world, you're miserable. This is what I'm saying. As a Christian, I cannot allow my heart and my mind to get attached and tied to this world. It will only let me down. Peter continued in verse 6 as he began speaking directly about trials, and this is where we need to understand some critical truths about trials, and these are very, very basic, but I promise you, these are some truths that you and I have to download, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. So that we have, so one of the things that I see is I see enough people, myself included, go through hard things. And as I have watched them go through hard things, and as I've watched myself go through hard things, what I can clearly realize is the things that we're about to look at right now, for so many of them, they do not understand these things. Which makes it very difficult for them to hold up and respond properly during times of trials. They get disappointed, they get frustrated with God, even angry with God, because they don't understand what we are about to look at. Number one, trials are seasonal. We see this in verse 6, though now for a season. They're seasonal. That word season, it means puny, P-U-N-Y. Not in size, but duration. Okay? When you get to chapter 5 and verse 10, Peter said, After that ye have suffered a while. Seasonal. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.17 in your notes. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See, compared to the eternal weight of glory, the duration of our trials are, is puny. <laughs> it's like that. This is why in James chapter 4, we're told life is like what? A vapor. It's that quick. So trials are seasonal. Uh, two, they are necessary. Uh, trials are seasonal and trials are necessary. Look at verse 6 again, if need be. Well, obviously, since it was happening, it was needed. It was necessary. In the 19th century, the only way, and Rich can correct me if I'm incorrect here, I know he'll be glad to, 
But in the 19th century, the only way to ship fresh North Atlantic cod from Boston to San Francisco was you had to do it by ship and you had to go around the South American continent to San Francisco. But the problem was by the time they got the fish there and they tried to dress them, they were inedible. So they said, okay, well then let's try and ship them by, we'll, we'll, we'll take these tanks and we'll fill them with water and, and we'll put the fish in the water and then we'll, 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 we'll try that. And then once they arrive in, in California, we'll try and dress them then. And what they found out was is that the fish, as long as they were just in that little tank, they really weren't moving a whole lot. So they weren't getting much exercise. So they were mushy and tasteless. So one guy says, how about this? How about we put some catfish in the tank with the fish, with the cod? Well, why is that? Well, catfish are the natural enemy of cod. So guess what happened? When they put catfish in the tank with the fish, what they realized was the fish now began, the cod now began to really move around to stay out of eating range of the catfish. So when those fish got to San Francisco and they were dressed, they were fantastic. See, here's the point. You need some catfish in your life to stay spiritually fit. You need some trials. You need some difficulties. You need some challenges to stay spiritually fit. You need some trials. They are necessary. Listen, you and I will never grow, will never become the people that we need to be in Christ, will never give God the glory that he deserves from our lives without trials. Sure, life would be so much easier. Would it be so much better? At least in our heads it would be, but it really wouldn't be. If all you did was sit around and just, listen, one of the biggest things would happen is you would never trust God for anything. You could walk by sight, not by faith. Trials are necessary. Look at James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 in your notes. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Uh, some of us have a very, um, we have a very preschool perspective on spiritual growth. Okay? In other words, it's very childish. So, yeah, I want to grow spiritually. Man, so how's that, how's that going to work? Well, I'll just read my Bible every day, pray, and go to church, and I'll become very mature, right? That's part of it, but that most certainly is not all of it. If need be, you need trials. Three, trials are heavy. Verse six, ye are in heaviness. This was a heavy time for Christians that Peter was writing to. Trials can feel like there is an elephant sitting on our chest and we can't breathe, right? You've been there? where you're saying, this is crushing me. Yes, they're heavy. 
We see a picture of this with Moses in battle against the Amalekites. Look in your notes at Exodus 17, verse 12. But Moses' hands were heavy. Heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Moses had become so weary and so fatigued that he couldn't even hold his hands up anymore. And we all know what happened when those hands came down. Israel began to get defeated. It's a picture of prayer. Trials can feel so heavy to the point where it's a challenge to even pray. They're so heavy. They're so intense. God, I don't even have words. And we need others to pray for us during those times. Four, trials are diverse testings. Verse six, through manifold temptations. That word manifold, it means motley or diverse. Temptations, I love it. A putting to proof. A putting to proof. Listen, trials prove things about us spiritually. It tells the truth. Trials, as God has taught me, they never lie in terms of what they reveal about us. If, if you really want to know, God already knows, but if you really want to know who you are, and what you really believe about God, and what you really believe about his word, if you really want to know the truth about that, there is something that will reveal the truth about it, and it cannot and will not lie, and that thing is a trial. That will reveal your faith in God and in his word, in his promises, all of that. Trials never lie. And they come in all varieties, don't they? Some of them are medical. Some of them are emotional. Some of them are financial. Some of them are relational. Some of them, I mean, you name it. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. So that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith, in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Notice the plurality of those words, persecutions, tribulations, manifold temptations. They are diverse. Very interestingly, uh, for the believers that Peter was writing to, those trials were coming from the Roman government. Very interesting. Because today, there are a number of Christians who really believe that 
intolerance against biblical Christianity from the U.S. government is rising, and their agenda against the church is only ramping up. And they would be correct in those assessments. What we need to remember, though, is we will not be the first group to have experienced this. Uh, This is something that I've noticed about us in Laodicea. Whenever things get tough, we become very much like Elijah. I'm the only one. (laughs) You couldn't possibly understand what's happening in my life. It is so hard. It is so hurtful. It is so tough. You've never been through anything like this. Like I said last week, talk to me when they start burning us alive and feeding us to lions. Come on, guys. Peter expounded on this thought in verses 7 to 9, providing us with more insight on understanding trials. And what we're about to look at here, I love it so very much because it is going to, if we allow it, it's going to take us next level in our understanding of trials. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with, with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul's Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable. Is that your reality and is it mine? Right now. Is that not challenging? Listen, I love this class and and we have a, a collection of people who have walked the Lord for so many years and you know the Bible so very well. You are doctrinally sharp. You are doctrinally astute. But may I ask you, are you rejoicing with joy unspeakable? What a thought. Trials are opportunities. Trials are opportunities. One, they are opportunities to strengthen our faith. The trial of your faith, though it be tried with fire. In chapter 4, Peter refers to the fiery trial. And what that tells me is, is that the time of his writing was absolutely, or it coincided with the persecutions that were being unleashed against believers in the Roman Empire by the wicked Roman Emperor Nero, who burned Rome and burned Christians alive. But gold increases in value when it is tried and refined by fire. But what Peter is telling us is the trial of our faith is far more valuable than that. Once again, this is why trials are needed. Two, trials are opportunities to glorify the Lord. They are opportunities to glorify the Lord. The Lord is glorified when the fire of the trial proves your faith to be found, listen, unto His praise, honor, and glory. That's when. 
Now, Peter attaches this to the appearing of Jesus Christ. He mentioned the phrase the last time in verse 5. He mentions it again in verse 20 of chapter 1. In chapter 4, he says, but the end of all things is at hand. So without a doubt, what Peter had in view was the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we do as well, then this is how we want our faith to be found at his appearing. That it would be found unto the praise, honor, and his glory. This is it, which can happen at any moment. And then finally, trials are opportunities to love the Lord. Whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Why would a Christian who is suffering take a faith position in Christ who they have not seen and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory? Why would they do that? Because they genuinely love the Lord Jesus Christ. They love him preeminently. And what that means is they love him first and foremost. Can I submit to you one of the reasons why Christians melt in seasons of trials and hardship? Because they love themselves and they love being comfortable more than they love him. They love themselves and they love being comfortable and they love having everything their way. They love that, listen, first and foremost. Which is why trials become their deal breaker with God. You let me get hurt. You're letting me suffer. You could have stopped this and you didn't. You could have prevented it and you didn't. So since you allowed me, since you let me, after all, aren't you the mighty, the omnipotent, the great one, the almighty? So since you have allowed me to get hurt, that's a deal breaker. I'll walk with you and I'll serve you from a distance. But I will not get close, because I can't trust you. Because you, whenever you deem it necessary, you'll allow me to get hurt. Again, temptations means a putting to proof. Do you know what trials reveal? Trials prove whether or not you really love him. That's what they prove. If you really love him. And finally, I mean it this time. Trials are opportunities to strengthen our hope. Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith even the salvation of your souls. Once again, what's in view there is the inheritance, 
the, of our salvation, our complete salvation, our full redemption. Here's the thing, and I love this. This is one of the things about trials that is so refreshing, and you'll see this with believers who have walked with the Lord for many years faithfully. They love him. They have only been, been faithful and true to him. And they're getting to the end of their life, and they're afflicted, they're suffering, they're on their way out. And they will say, and I've heard things like this, they will say things like, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm at peace. Let me go. What is it? It's their living hope. They're ready for their inheritance. Their desire, this trial has only strengthened their desire for their hope. They've come to the place where their hope is not anchored to or in this world. They're not looking to get better. They aren't looking for things to get better. They are looking to inherit their hope. which is a lively hope. What has God said to you this morning? How has he challenged you? Um, I know for sure one of the things that he's challenged you with is, are you rejoicing? Well, that depends, doesn't it? That depends on whether or not you've made peace in your heart and in your life with these things. If you haven't, keep listening. God will speak. Lord, I want to thank you so much for giving us time and space to examine these things in your word. God, whatever it is that you have revealed to us, I do pray, God, that we would not just turn it off when we walk out of here this morning, but that, God, we would meditate on it and listen to what you would say to us about it that, God, we would inherit these things and receive them, Lord, so that we will live a life of rejoicing despite what's happening in and around us. That would be to your praise, honor, and glory. Amen.